This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. My hands, they're too idle. They're going to get me into trouble. Devil's playthings. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. We watched the movie Idle Hands, y'all. Uh-huh. I saw it in the theater when I was 10 years old. Oh, you old. did? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. And the real bummer is, like, I straight up loved it. And that's, right. like, I'm mad at my younger self for loving it. We get mad at ourselves a lot on the show just being like, I was such a fool. Yeah. Before we get started, should we listen to the trailer? Let's do it. Anton Tobias never had much on his mind. My dream life would be to lie around all day in bed and watch TV while somehow Brad delivers me food. And he always had time on his hands. Four bodies have been discovered and the killer is still at large. Until one of them got a mind of its own. I have no control over my hands. Makes me do things I don't want him to do. Now... His hand won't stop. I don't want to hurt you. Don't! Ew, that's disgusting. His friends won't die. Dead. Undead, actually. And it was this big, bright white light at the end of a long tunnel. That's what happened. We were like, forget that, man. It's too far. (gasps) Columbia Pictures presents Idle Hands. The touching story of a boy. And his hand. Kinky. Fly for a white guy. Gabba told my mama. Wow. damn it. How do we even begin to unpack? Holy <laughs> shitballs. Well, the offspring covering the Ramones. I mean, it's just like this movie is a culmination of showing me just how much of a douchebag I was when I was right. 10. Because I'm like really into the offspring. Right. My feeling was that Devin Sawa was the next Michael J. Fox. Like oh, I was like yeah. an idiot. Right. I was like, this guy is funny. I mean, I feel like the only thing that's right about this movie is the offspring. Is, <laughs> Americana yeah. was quite the record. Yes, oh my God. But I was, okay, yeah, this was, I so you said 10, age uh, 10. Yeah, because it came out in 99. Uh, okay, but still it's, yeah, so we were in grade school when it happened, right. but then, I so I definitely did not see it in theaters, but saw it a bunch as a middle schooler and like, you know, as with a lot of the drivel that I consumed mm-hmm. as a middle schooler was like, this is what's good, I guess. <laughs> right, like, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. I, and like the physical comedy, there's a lot to have fun with. Like <laughs> his crazy hand, you know, him just dancing all over the place mm-hmm, basically with the mm-hmm. hand is great. Of course, my biggest issue, I just like will shout it from the highest rooftop forever and always the complete nonsense that is Jessica Alba's character. She is a non-person. A non-person. It's, this is nobody yeah. would ever even yeah. remotely act like this. Right. I, I feel like this is a prime example of it's like no wonder chicks are so pissed off about representation right, in media right. because I remember at the time even as like, you know, a dumb 13 year old being like. This bitch is dead behind the eyes. Right. And of course, I blamed it on her at the time. But then as I grew up, I was like, oh, no, they gave her absolutely nothing to work with. And right. she's a 17-year-old kid. Blame the writer's directors, not the actor <laughs> yeah. who got their big break. Right, right. Yeah. Let's be clear. Like, she's I don't think she's great. a great actress. But <laughs> I do think that they they did a disservice to her. Yeah. But I, I didn't remember that Foggy from fucking Daredevil was in this movie. I know. And, and Seth Green. Yeah. It's great. The director was the director of Leprechaun 2 and a ton of TV stuff, including he later did 
did like episodes of the OC and Ugly Betty. Oh shit, it all makes sense. Was Leprechaun two in the hood? No, that was the Leprechaun seven. movies reached a point where they went to the hood, right. and then there was Back to the Hood, <laughs> which was a sequel to Back in the Hood. You, you doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, the right. writers of Idle Hands have written for other sh- TV shows like Eureka, which I actually loved, and like some other sci-fi TV shows like The One Hundred that are not like well-regarded right. prestige TV, but like a good solid, enough fine yeah. TV. I've heard of The One Hundred. I have never heard of Eureka. Really? Yeah. It was on Sci-Fi Channel for like seven years oh, or six. That's years. probably it's why I didn't. Great. Know. It's yeah. a great show. Well, you'd be surprised. What's your excuse with this, writers? <laughs> Get at us. Yeah. So the the hand, his, the, you know, when mm-hmm. it's like disembodied, once he cuts his hand off, was right. the same as Thing in the Adams Family, That's played by right. magician Christopher Hart. See, I owned this movie on DVD, and I think I saw that from the special features that right. I watched a lot as a kid. And that was I loved good. this movie. Very magic hands. <laughs> Here's a little anecdotal story for you guys. I do appreciate, again, like the physical comedy that Devin Saw was doing, like mm-hmm. this idea that your hand is possessed. Right. Because I actually filmed a short film several years ago oh, that, of shit. course, never came to fruition because that's low budget uh, Hollywood for you, yeah, yeah. in which I played a woman who becomes possessed by the hands of a flamboyant Italian man. So, <laughs> so you're, move, you're right. moving your hands around. Yeah. So I literally had to get like molds of my arms and my hand, they're like hairy and like, you know, I had to do the oh, whole thing wow. of like, like there is something awesome about the challenge of, of like acting as though your hands and your appendages are doing something that you're not familiar with. Right, right. Like part of the audition was like, okay, you're going to, you're going to pretend to be like dancing sexy, but then your hands are mm. going all crazy and it was like wow when you like when you think about how entwined the movements of your hands are like with what you do especially me i am an italian who uses my hands like crazy this is an audio only show but i sit across from her and my god her arms are flailing like crazy yeah i mean i can't help it but it's a fucking (laughs) emphatic i just am emphasizing everywhere well i also just love like yeah the acting challenge as like a mime thing because like i love watching an actor who really knows how to how to fight an inanimate object and lose. Yes, Like, that's, like, the most fun thing to watch because, like, they're able to indicate another presence without it actually being there. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it adds that extra bit of challenge than even just stage combat, right? Mm -hmm, Where it's, mm -hmm. like, the reaction that makes the audience think that you're getting hit. So if you're doing that with, like, a giant stuffed animal, for example, it's Mm -hmm. even that much funnier. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because you're just going nuts. I read that... This movie was delayed in its release because of the Columbine massacre. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Really? Because, you know, he's killing people, but I was like, God. Yeah, it's about murder. Right. That sort of tells school. you, it sort of emphasize or underscores how big that it was like the first of that. So yeah. to think that like everything, like Marilyn Manson, trench coats, right. goth stuff, idle hands was. <laughs> well, it's about a guy who murders his friends. Know, it's not I that know. fun. Yeah. It's also, okay, so. Idle hands, what does that even mean? What does that refer to? Mm. It refers to Proverbs, book 16, verses 27 through 29. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. I've heard it's the devil's workshop. I've also heard the devil's tools. I've heard the devil's playground. It's all sorts of, it's what the devil uses. He's just hanging out with with the hands. (laughs) The devil's out at recess with a bunch of idle hands. (laughs) Right. So Proverbs actually goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle lips are his mouthpiece. Mm. An evil man sows strife. Gossip separates the best of friends, wickedness loves company, and leads others into sin. So how they 
basically address that in the movie is like he's a big lazy bones who right. just wants to sit on the couch and eat food and I you know not do anything right. with his life. And <laughs> so, J- Vivica yeah. A. Fox is like chasing a demon that possesses hands around the country and it chose him. Oh, it, it chose him. Sweet Vivica, bless your fucking heart. <laughs> I forgot she was like the highlight of this movie. I know. All right, so yeah, this guy doesn't have control of his hands, Mm -hmm. but uh, I wanted to look into left-handedness versus right-handedness and like what determines that and what that's about and whatnot. Why is it that most people are right-handed? I will tell you. So the two most widely published genetic theories of human hand preference argue that evolutionary natural selection produced a majority of individuals with speech and language control in the left hemisphere of the brain, which also controls the movements of the right hand. So approximately 85% of people are right-handed. How it actually works is there are two alleles or manifestations of a gene at the same genetic location that are associated with handedness. One of the alleles is a D gene for dextral, which means right. And the other allele is a C gene, which means chance. So the D gene is more frequent in the population and is more likely to occur as part of the genetic heritage of an individual. But the C gene is less likely to occur within the gene pool, but when it's present, the hand preference of the individual is determined randomly. So if you have this C allele, then it's basically a 50-50 chance as oh. to whether or not you're going to be left or right. And if you have right. the D, then you're definitely right. Right, exactly. Oh, okay. So if you do have the C gene, then it could basically be influenced by external cultural and societal pressures, huh. which can also explain the presence of right-handed children in families with left-handed parents and vice versa. Or is that how ambidextrous people like can do their thing, is that they're born with the C gene and then they're taught to use their right hand? I'm not, I didn't look specifically into ambidextrous that's okay. a good question though but it seems like it, it would be right like right. if if you have that chance or maybe you know if you just kind of practice right i mean really practice because I, I used i used to do that as a kid and i got better but then i was like why i don't care why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for what yeah but i also read according to this brand new study in the journal e-life it seems that hand preference is actually ingrained in your biological workings from before you were born but in gene activity in the spine not in the brain hmm. So these researchers from Germany, the Netherlands, and South Africa, they've been monitoring the gene expression within developing spinal cords of babies inside the womb between the 8th and 12th weeks of pregnancy. It seems that there's some asymmetry going on that there's never been detected before. They're saying that this happens long before the motor cortex, which is responsible for movement, is even wired up to the brain. It appears to be centered on parts of the spine responsible for transmitting electrical impulses to the hands, arms, legs, and feet. So around the 8th week of development, that's when these asymmetries start to happen which seems to influence the handedness of a baby and then like as these things start happen then there's some kind of external or environmental factors that are affecting the baby they're not quite sure exactly what those external factors are but it's possible that the factors alter how enzymes operate around the baby which changes how their genes express themselves which thus influences the asymmetry of gene activity in the spine wow so that's all happening in your world yes wow yeah because when you say external influences I'm like, well, we all grew up in a right-handed world. But you mean like before that. Yeah, like when the baby is inside the womb, there's Mm -hmm. some kind of external factor between that eighth and twelfth week, or it's like I said, about the Mm -hmm. eighth week of pregnancy that they start seeing like, oh, there's electrical impulses that seem to favor the right or the left. So it's interesting. It's like some people say that it's the external factors once you're, you Mm -hmm. know, external of your mom and just like being (laughs) raised by people and like, you know, they don't they don't make left-handed can openers, exactly. right? As you Ned know. Flanders would, right. would have until you, the leftorium, left, yeah, the leftorium, leftorium mm-hmm. came into being. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, what do you think about that? Like, 
Do you think it's more, you know, enzymes that are affected by external factors once you're inside or that it's more societal? When it happens, it happens rarely enough that you would think that, like, we would try to force them to conform. Right. And But we do allow left-handedness to prosper, and right. teachers aren't like, you have to write with your right hand. Totally. That's why I was more skeptical of that idea that it's mm. like, you know, societal norms and right. pressures are what's what's yeah that was not a thing that like left-handed kids getting wedgied and swirlies and stuff a genetic thing somehow i I guess i thought of it in the same way that like you know blue eyes are uncommon right but a lot of people have them and it's not that fucking weird recessive gene yeah did you look into the concept that people who are left-handed are more creative no i didn't is that a thing i've heard that i don't know if that's left-handed people telling themselves that and i want to i'll look into that in the future maybe that's just what my brother's been telling me all this time because he's left-handed i mean there are anecdotal accounts of artists and musicians tending to be left left left-handed advocates point to leonardo da vinci a lefty paul Mm -hmm. mccartney Mm -hmm. but psychologist chris mcmanus explains in his award-winning book right hand left hand although there are recurrent claims of increased creativity in left-handers there is very little to support the idea in the scientific literature okay there is another paper that surveyed 662 new zealand undergrads about their handedness and personality and they found left and right handers did not differ on any personality factor (laughs) however there was a tendency for people with a weaker preference for either hand i.e the mixed handed to be more introverted Interesting. Yeah, because you're a weirdo. Because you, yeah. <laughs> you don't play by anybody's rules. What about IQ? One massive study found no link with handedness. Another found a slight IQ advantage for right-handers. Well, oh, shit. So tell that to your brother. <laughs> right, I will. <laughs> Science. So in this movie, he chops his own hand off because yeah. it's not behaving. Right. Uh, and I looked into a bunch of it's instances. idle? It's idle and... <laughs> It's idling. (laughs) So I looked into some self-surgeries, and there are a bunch of examples of this in history. My brain first goes to 127 hours. Yeah, well, there's like, I'll get to that, because there's a bunch of similar stories to 127 hours. Your brain should go there. (laughs) So Jerry Nielsen, in 1998, was an ER doctor at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica, Mm. and she discovered a lump in her breast soon after the six-month midnight winter began. We've talked both about like Polar Night recently, and I've talked about the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station mm-hmm. a while ago. Which, if you remember, what's at the South Pole is a statue of Vladimir Lenin. Oh, right, right, and right. Now there's this research facility, which is the only place on Earth that has land surface where the sun is continuously up for six months and then continuously down for six months. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Nielsen had to video conference with other doctors and performed two biopsies on herself during the polar night, having to remove part of the lump in her breast for testing. The National Science Foundation was able to airdrop supplies and medicine, and she was able to send back a test, which did test positive for cancer. What? Yeah. Nielsen self-administered chemotherapy until she was finally rescued months later and went through several surgeries at that point. She actually wrote a book about the whole experience called Icebound, Mm -hmm. which was made into a TV movie starring Susan Sarandon as her. Wow, okay. And she became a motivational speaker until she eventually died of cancer in 2009. Oh, no. But she lived another 10 years after her Mm self-surgery. And just the number of circumstances that she's in, in Antarctica, four months trapped in the darkness... And they still managed to do a successful self-surgery right. on her own. Because so she did the biopsy and then that tested positive and then she was giving herself chemo. Chemotherapy. So it's not like she 
had to do like a biopsy. Well, that's just like a little chunk, right? Right. But how but the fuck did she anesthetize that? Well, with local anesthetism. Wow. So another person who was trapped in Antarctica back in 1961 was a guy named Leonid Ragozov, and he had got appendicitis. Mm-hmm. And he was the only doctor on the trip, so he had to perform the surgery on himself while he was weak and nauseous from the appendicitis. That's fucking horrible. He wore no gloves, and the other men held up a mirror so he could see what he was doing. It took two hours, and the operation was successful. (sighs) Again, like local anesthesia. That's right, local anesthesia. Had he not operated, he would have been dead within a day. Holy shit. He was later awarded the Soviet Order of the Red Banner of Labor, mm-hmm. which I imagine is like an equivalent of the Congressional Medal of Honor or yeah. something along right. those lines. But man, in 1961, it's amazing that he survived it. Absolutely. This next one is fucked up. Oh, no. <clears throat> this is Inez Ramirez Perez, who performed a C-section on herself in Mexico in 2000. No. Without painkillers, she drank some liquor, took a six-inch kitchen knife, and made three attempts to cut into her own abdomen. (sighs) Amazingly, she didn't pass out, she didn't bleed to death, she didn't go into shock, or cut her own intestines. She pulled the baby out of her uterus, cut the umbilical cord, and then passed out. When she woke up, a medical professional from the village was sewing up her incision with a needle and thread. Then it took her 16 hours to make it to the hospital, and then she was pretty much fine. What? She had only slightly damaged her intestines, and she's the only known woman to ever have performed a successful cesarean on herself. That is absolutely insane. And it's such a weird thing, too, because it's like, you're not supposed to drink if you've got a baby. I know. But what about if you have to get the baby out? Like, is it that <laughs> yeah. late where it's like, well, you know? Actually, as I understand it, alcohol was one of the first things that was used to induce labor. Interesting. So I don't, obviously she wouldn't have wanted to induce labor if she's going to do a cesarean, yeah. but like, like we now use different drugs to induce labor when that's necessary, but alcohol was one of the earliest ones that we used. I mean, it's just fascinating because I'm such a, I, I don't think I have a particularly high pain tolerance <laughs> right. just because also it's like, I haven't, I feel like once you've experienced a lot of pain, then it's mm-hmm. like not that big of a deal, but if you're like not really used to it or whatever, and then you just start cutting open your tummy. Well, that's the thing is like, I can't even imagine the pain that it is, but if the other option is your death, death, then it is amazing what people are capable of. Survival, yeah. Getting into the 127 hours stories. Right. Because not only is there that story of Aaron Ralston, it is true that he was stuck between a rock and he had to cut his own arm off in order to to survive. There's a bunch of these stories. Most of them are really fucked up. But there was one that was really interesting to me, which was of a man named Samson Parker, who in 2007 got his hand stuck in a corn shucker when nobody was around. Mm -hmm. When he tried to stop the machine by sticking a metal rod into it, sparks flew off and started a fire nearby on some loose hay or corn husks or whatever. Oh, shit. And so he had to cut his arm off quick before the fire got to him. Oh, my God. So that's what I wonder, too, is like how much of the adrenaline Mm -hmm. kind of kicks in there. I feel like obviously there's excruciating pain, but then you're thinking like the the body has an amazing way to kind of flood you with chemicals Mm -hmm. to, I guess, alleviate some of that pain so that you don't pass out. Yeah, to allow you to do this. I thought, you know, when it comes to a lot of blood loss or, you know, certainly those kinds of really traumatic wounds that people get that your body kind of puts you into shock so that's what's what i find fascinating is that they were able to you know maintain clarity of mind long enough to actually complete these procedures which are not quick i know you know two hours of doing an appendectomy or whatever yeah 
With the Cornhusker thing, I just love that it's like bad enough that his arm is stuck in the thing, but he could like leave that for a while and maybe be rescued. Right. But exactly. like once the fire gets started, you're like, this you're is... like, this has to go. I also read that while he was recovering from the injury, 25 of his neighbors helped him finish harvesting the corn. Oh, you gotta love those neighbors. It takes a village. People are good. <laughs> Science. Well, okay, so you're talking about self-surgery, but I was interested in... You remember the scene in the movie where fucking... Is it Foggy that cauterizes his arm? Or is it Devin Sawa? It's Devin Sawa. He's with Seth Green, and they they cut their arm off, and then he uses an iron to cauterize it. Yeah, he uses a clothing iron to cauterize the wound on his arm. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking into cauterization. Now, you know, in terms of whether or not a clothing iron is strong enough to do that, it's it's unclear. But basically, it's like anything that gets hot enough can do that. Because it's a red hot. Exactly. Red hot clothing iron, which I don't know if in terms of regulation, they're like, we don't need it to be red hot. You're just you're just ironing fucking polyester. How hot can you make an iron? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, okay, so cauterization, in case you don't know, it's basically just sealing a wound with a red hot instrument in an attempt to keep from bleeding to death, which is called exsanguination. That's Mm. bleeding to death. Mm -hmm. Now, cauterization as a medical treatment can be traced back to Hippocrates in the 5th century BC, but early healers used the method to stop bleeding and infection in amputations, surgical removal of cancerous tumors, and the like. Mm -hmm. So it stops bleeding by heating up the tissue and blood, causing it to coagulate or clot. This is through a process called protein denaturation. Mm. So when proteins in our skin and blood are exposed to extreme heat, they lose their original chemical structure and it causes them to cease their normal cellular functions, which results in a bunch of different abnormal characteristics. The two that help stop bleeding are the protein's loss of solubility and the clustering together of what are known as hydrophobic proteins. So the Mm. clustering, which is called communal aggregation, causes the proteins to bind together tightly, which does not allow blood to pass through. This is also why eggs harden when you cook them. Similar to that. Scrambling it up, they're just coagulating. So like using heat to sterilize objects is very effective, but the problem with using cauterization on live human tissue is the second and third degree birds, obviously. Mm, So it's like you really want to isolate it to whatever you're trying to stop as opposed to just being like, well, just anywhere (laughs) will do. Well, third degree burns are really bad if you have them over enough of your body. Right, and because they also leave a perfect environment for outside bacteria to grow and Uh spread. So a lot of studies have shown that you're much more likely to get an infection from cauterization Mm. than the treatment would have pre- prevented in the first place. Interesting. There's something called chemical cauterization, which uses chemicals to heat and sometimes cool the affected tissues. They, they've they used this in treatments for nosebleeds, canker sores, warts. I've had oh. I've had a fucking wart frozen off. And, and I, then I, they know. cauterize it afterward? Well, I don't know if that's the same because the, basically the most common chemicals that they use are silver nitrate, phenol, and liquid nitrogen. Okay. I feel like it was maybe nitrogen that they used to, to basically just freeze it off. I don't wow. know if that's the same as cauterizing, but they're saying... You know, if they're talking about it's either to heat it or to cool it, uh-huh. I'm like, <laughs> so many chemical reactions. But like as an example, silver nitrate applicators are just wooden sticks with 75% silver nitrate and 25% potassium nitrate embedded on the tip. So when you moisten the tip, it sparks this chemical reaction that burns organic matter, such as skin, hmm. coagulates the tissue, and then destroys bacteria. So again, it's like super, super caustic. So it's got to be used with caution uh-huh. and so that you can prevent damage to healthy 
tissue. You can confine it by using petroleum jelly to kind of isolate that area. But yeah. And then there's something called electrocauterization, which is when a small instrument with an electric current flowing through it is placed on the affected area. And then a grounding pad is applied elsewhere on the body, which will help the patient deal with the negative effects of the electric current. So this is different from electrodissection. So electrodissection is high frequency surgical devices that transfer the electrical energy to human tissue. In this case, the tissue itself is what causes the electrical resistance and then like results in that protein denaturation that I was talking about before. The surgical instrument itself remains cool, mm-hmm. whereas in electrocauterization, the instrument is what gets super duper okay. hot. Okay. So yeah, That's it's yeah, it's the difference between your your body reacting to that electricity and then your body reacting to just crazy heat. Right. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I mean it's it's awesome, but again, I think just the obviously the bacteria grow. I just I'm yeah. like it just seems like these days we got a lot better ways of dealing. Well, with that's that. like I've seen. I can't remember in what movie or video game or whatever, but like it was something where there was like a major cut that this character had on their leg, mm. and the way that they cauterized it was they opened up a bullet and dumped a bunch of gunpowder into it and oh, then yeah. flashed it. So oh, that it all like the revenant. The revenant cauterizes a wound with okay, the, yeah, the yeah, gunpowder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and it, it hurt got, like a bitch. And, and I it was bet just, that yeah. the infection must have been insane right, after that. Right. Well, that's why I was thinking certainly early on in terms of you know fucking civil war. Mm-hmm. You know, like amputations on the field yeah. and the kind of crazy shit that they did. What's it called when you put something on your body and it cuts off all circulation from like a tourniquet? Tourniquet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've also heard about them using base early, early on. They would use a combination of the tourniquet and the cauterization. Wow. Like pain is so important to let you know, like don't do that. Right. But also like how much your body can overcome the pain. Because I I can't imagine the kind of pain that this, that that would feel like. With both of these cases, it's the kind of thing of like, what would you rather completely die or have severe pain and potentially disfigurement? Right. And that's like, your body is inherently trying to survive. Right. Even with the disfigurement. So whether it's like an animal chewing off their arm because they got caught in a a trap or a guy in a corn husker or, you Uh, know. Totally. I mean, yeah, just that need to to survive. I mean, unless you're the prideful bitch in Seven who was (laughs) given the choice to call the police or take sleeping pills and she just couldn't deal with her face being all cut up. That's... So I don't know if I don't know if I would be that person, but I'm just saying like I'm a I'm such a puss that I'm I wonder, but I also think like but anybody like you know is it like women can lift a truck off of their baby because that adrenaline and that desperate need to survive. Human beings' bodies, fucking weird. (laughs) Don't cauterize though. Well, talking about how weird a human being's body can get. (laughs) So in this movie, he loses control over his hand. And I've previously talked about two-headed snakes fighting over control of their own bodies and how it's very difficult. And sometimes they'll even like attack each other mm-hmm. over food. And I wound up looking into cases, although they're very rare, of humans with two heads. Mm-hmm. Oh. Now, this comes from the same mechanism as conjoined twins. Mm-hmm. So, But like it's done in a very specific way that al- almost always kills the people before they're, they can make it to adulthood. Mm-hmm. But I read about these two twins named the Hansel twins who were born in 1990. And they were born with two functional arms and a vestigial third arm that was surgically removed. What does that mean, vestigial? Like it was just like a third arm that survived the conjoining element. And it was not controlled by either of them. And so it was going to potentially be a problem. And so they removed it. Mm -hmm. Each twin has her own complete head, heart, and spine. 
<gasps> two spines go through one neck. Like it's like one rib cage that two spines go through and they converge into the hip bones, like one set two of hip bones. Two spines go to one hip bone. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. All right. Each head controls one arm and one leg. They even have their own sets of lungs and own stomachs. Okay. Each head controls one arm and one leg, and they wound up developing good motor skills, but it took a long time because in order to do things like clapping or crawling or walking, it requires cooperation of both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they have they learned pretty quickly how to move around and, and do things. Eventually, they made it through college, and they live fairly normal lives. They even coordinate to be able to drive a car. They were able to pass their driver's exam, both written and the driving part, but it was like complicated because they have to constantly be right. in communication with each other. Right. And when you say fairly normal lives, <laughs> I feel like it's like well, not in the sense that they're like having to be institutionalized or cared for or whatever, right. but I would highly doubt that their lives are anything that are No, I'm not so <laughs> what I what I mean is like they're able to drive a car. Right. They have jobs. Like right. they they're actually right now they are part-time fourth and fifth grade math teachers. That's incredible. So when I say normal lives, I mean like to the degree that it could realistically right. happen. They're 27 years old right now. So they can eat and write simultaneously, which must be really weird to see. Like both of them, two arms, right. each writing different essays at the same time right. that are attached to the same body. And, and one teaches fourth grade and one teaches fifth grade? <laughs> I wish. I oh, think oh. that they both teach both. Oh, I don't, okay, okay. I don't know exactly the mechanism for that. <laughs> but they don't have sensation in each other's arms. So it's really like they're two bodies within one. Right, right. Wow, that is fascinating. They also share three kidneys, one enlarged liver, one bladder, and one set of reproductive organs. I eat chihuahua. Okay, so this is when we're entering into like abnormal territory. Well, I would think. (laughs) I didn't read much about their dating lives. I don't know that there's much out there. They do value their private lives. Right. They did say once in an interview that they hope to date, get married, and have children. My thought was like, that sounds like a crazy sitcom. Right. I mean, it's... Yeah, totally. I mean, when I hear about that, of course, it sounds... It sounds crazy and certainly like who, what are the, what are the conditions or who are the partners that you would find well, that are, it, it's such a big ask. Do right? you have two separate husbands or do they have one because there's only one reproductive organ, mm-hmm. but that they're sharing. And would you as a husband share with another husband? Like mm-hmm. it's talk about complicated. Right. I mean, well that gets into the whole, I mean, it's like whether or not you know, vagina belongs to the husband right. or not is, you know, that's a whole other thing. Well, I didn't thing. mean that. I right. meant like, I didn't mean the vagina belongs to the husband, but like, Oh, but you like, said sharing one reproductive Well, organ. I meant like in terms of like, would I feel like it was be like I was being cheated on? Right. If you're even entering into the world of dating, it's like, you're going to have to get over whatever issues right. you have with feeling cheated on or right. ownership mm-hmm. of, and I don't mean like physically her vagina, but right, you're t- like right. the reason why people are, like they don't like being cheated on is because there's that like kind of terrestrial like yeah, owner, yeah. I don't want anybody else to see your dick kind of right, thing. You know, right. that's, that's all I'm saying first of all I think it's an incredible testament to human beings adaptability yeah I mean they clearly were raised in this circumstance mm. you know I could say that someone who's blind has a completely crazy and unusual life and right. it's like but you find normalcy where normalcy exists right, right? I, I don't know who the person is that would be like down with this because I it's know. like because it's not it's like how do you reconcile the fact that you do have separate thoughts, you have separate movements, you have separate feelings here and there, and yet something like so intimate and like 
how are you going to fucking have kids? Well, that's what like, because each twin likes different stuff. Like right. one likes certain foods that the other one hates. Yeah. I guess like when they both agree on something, they'll like respond like in, in emails as mm-hmm. one person. But when they disagree, they'll respond using each of their individual names. Okay. And apparently like Abby, which is one of them, is better at math and Brittany is better at writing. Right. And it's like, I would think that they would have different tastes in men. <laughs> Totally, you know, totally. I mean, I remember watching some, I don't know if it was 60 Minutes or whatever when I was like in middle school, Mm -hmm. but it was conjoined twins. It wasn't like this. It was like two separate bodies. Mm -hmm. One was kind of normal height and one was smaller, Uh but they did date like they did have different lives. And it was this kind of thing where they talked about it. Where like, you know, if one was on a date with her person, the other one's there connected to her head, but had this way of kind of going out of her body and not being there. And so it really is sort of a mind over matter thing that, you know, human beings are really capable of adapting to all sorts of crazy, crazy situations. Well, I guess I would hope that the conjoined twin who's doing that would also expect their sibling to do the same thing for them. Right. They like switch off basically. But what I'm saying is like, it, they were able to find it where it wasn't that one guy was with both of them. Right, right. They had that separation, that separation. but again, they had two separate bodies. Right. So I can see how this becomes far more complicated mm-hmm. and more like, I mean, I, you we, really have to ask some existential questions in terms of yeah. what that, like, it, they are just bodies, right? Like, if, Well, you mentioned too, like, one was bigger than the other mm-hmm. in, that, in that case. They actually had to stunt the growth of one of their spines because the other one was continuing to grow while oh. the other one had stopped. Oh, and man. so they had to, like, go, do something to basically keep the symmetry uh-huh. because that's what's so rare right. that they actually seem to have, like, mo- for the most part, is symmetry in their body. Uh-huh. And that, like, can lead to so many medical problems. Right. I guess they actually had a short-lived reality show called Abby and Brittany on the TLC. I can't imagine ever being as close to anybody as close as they must feel to each other. Right. Like, you literally rely on this other person for half of the shit that you do every day, from walking to brushing your teeth. Like, you need the coordination of, like... One of them has to hold the toothpaste tube while the other one holds the brush. And then it's like they do that for each other and, like... Every day you're relying on your sibling in a way that nobody can, nobody ever really relies on anybody else. Right. You know, not to be like fascinated by the sex lives, but it's just, it's such a, it is a fascinating fundamental of part it. of who we are. Right? right. I also, I just, I'm reading now. It's like, based on what we know about the significant variability of one conjoined twin to feel a body part that putatively belongs to the other twin, it's hard to guess how any conjoinment will turn out in practice. And talking about like, Nerves, muscles, hormones, and psychology all probably factor into who feels what. So it's like so weird. Like, first of all, it's also bizarre because I like, I don't know about you, but I do not talk about sex with my brother. Right. No. I, we don't. So imagine like sharing sex with my brother. Literally sharing. Literally sharing sex. <laughs> like, that's what's. Ay, Chihuahua. Well, good for them. They look happy. They seem to be living. Yeah. I mean, they're. Can you imagine being in their classroom? Right. <laughs> it, you know, fourth, fifth graders. Right. Oh, man. Well, and then again, like that relationship that you have with this person that you're literally so attached to, I feel Mm -hmm. like their priorities are not going to be the same as the general populace. You know what I mean? Like we are so individual in the way that we approach the world that it's like you can't be you can't be a selfish lover. This was all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This was all well explored in the classic movie Stuck on You. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with Matt Damon. I totally and forgot about that. That's a documentary, right? Total documentary. <laughs> Science. Do you remember why there's a taser in this movie? 
At one point, cops show up and they don't want to kill Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa's hand grabs a taser and kills the milk commercial guy. Right. One of my favorite dudes ever. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he was also in Twister. Oh, yeah. Which we just watched. That's coming up in an coming upcoming up episode. Week. So I wanted to look into tasers, though. So the the first taser-like device was invented in 1852 and was an electric whaling apparatus. What? It was essentially just an electrified version of the harpoon. Oh, yeah, okay. Basically with hopes of stunning the whale to increase the likelihood of catching it while diminishing risk to the whalers. Mm-hmm. This is fucked up and gross, but the early use of an electronic control device by law enforcement occurred in the 1960s when police officers used electric cattle prods to disperse civil rights activists. Uh-huh. So that with the fucking fire hoses and the whatnot is just like man's inhumanity to man now unlike stun guns cattle prods are not designed to incapacitate an individual or an animal just to deliver a painful shock to a localized area give it like a startle yeah exactly but without like knocking it out right? right now stun guns on the other hand are usually designed to deliver even larger voltages in order to overwhelm the body's nervous system that's why a lot of people like end up going to the ground and like convulsing in Mm. that case. So NASA researcher Jack Cover was among the many inventors who developed forms of these types of weapons. And he took inspiration from a newspaper article about a man surviving a run-in with an electric fence. Oh, So he basically knew that an electric current could be used without the danger associated. Because he whizzed on it. Yeah. We talked (laughs) about this in another episode. (laughs) He ends up patenting the design for a device that he named the Taser in 1974. The name stands for Thomas A. Swift Electric Rifle after the sci-fi novel Tom Swift and his electric rifle. So he was Where's the bro? (laughs) Don't tase me bro. Yeah, so the Taser was similar to other stun guns that were invented during the 60s and 70s, except the two charge electrodes are not permanently joined to the housing. So instead, they're positioned at the ends of these long conductive wires attached to the gun's electrical circuit. So then when they pull the trigger, it breaks open a compressed gas cartridge inside the gun, and then the expanding gas builds pressure behind the electrodes, launching them through the air with the attached wires trailing behind. This is the same basic firing mechanism as in a BB gun. Okay, yeah, like airsoft kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the electrodes are affixed with these small barbs so that they'll grab onto an attacker's clothing, and then the current travels down the wires into the attacker, stunning Mm -hmm. them in the same way as a conventional stun gun. Mm -hmm. The main advantage is just that you can stun attackers from a greater distance, usually 15 or 20 feet, Mm -hmm. but the disadvantage is that you only get one shot. So if you miss, you have to wind up and repack it, and Mm -hmm. you have to load a new gas cartridge and that kind of thing. So most taser models also have ordinary stun gun electrodes in case the you know, the wires don't work. Okay, so that you're not just defenseless. Yeah, like, oh, oops, I missed. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, yeah. The, some some of them these days have a built-in shooter identification system, which is interesting. So when a police officer fires the electrodes, the gun releases dozens of these confetti-sized identification tags, Ooh. basically telling investigators which gun was fired at what location. And by who. Right, and then some have a computer system that records the time of every shot, that kind of thing, That's which is great. nice. The accountability yeah. is important. Put it, that into guns. I know, God bless America. <laughs> Because tasers initially used gunpowder to fire the projectiles, the United States government classified them as firearms, Mm. which severely limited the sale of the device with just a select number of police departments trying it out. One such agency was the Los Angeles Police Department. The LAPD famously used a taser in an effort to subdue Rodney King in 1991, but the device had little effect, and then that led to all sorts of chaos and terrible. Yeah, The clubs had more effect. That's right. Some terrible effects. Now, the failure of the taser inspired this change so that the darts fired via compressed air rather than gunpowder and then that made it so that stun guns could be more easily sold to the general public that was because of rodney king yeah fuck yeah 
as a result of that not Holy being able to subdue him. Shit. Yeah, it's bullshit. Like uh, that's that's what we learned from that. Debacle. Yeah, like the, the takeaway <laughs> is the taser needs to be improved. Right. Fucking, Fucking hell. Jesus. Yeah, and think think about this. Between 2000 and 2013, the number of law enforcement organizations using tasers jumped from 500 to approximately 17,000. Holy shit. Yeah. Now, Amnesty International states that 540 deaths across the United States between 2001 and 2013 can be linked to tasers really? because it's this idea that, you know, the electrical torture leaves less evidence. It doesn't leave an obvious wound, but right. it's severely painful. Right. And the American Heart Association published an article that looked at eight cases of taser use on suspects and found that its usage can result in cardiac arrest yeah. in a person, which makes sense. You're fucking, sh- I mean, yeah. hello, clear. Defibrilla- like, it's yeah. The, yeah, opposite of defibrillating. So... <laughs> Taser International, which I didn't, that's the <laughs> International Corporation. Uh-huh. They've argued that this limited number of case studies does not lend itself to the drawing of broad conclusions, but... Oh, really? Yeah, they've changed their stance slightly, saying that, you know, their product can cause heart rate, rhythm capture, and cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Like, thanks, guys. And the NRA says bullets can cause flesh wounds. <laughs> right. Oh, is that a change? I'm just the- oh, like, what like- are you guys saying? Right. Yeah, you're like, you're no a gun shit. manufacturer yeah. that hurts people. You're shocking people you're literally shooting it at someone's chest right and you don't think that's going to cause like, some bullshit it may cause issues yeah. maybe yeah now one of the newer stun gun weapons is the liquid stun gun and it's oh. hooked up to a tank of highly conductive liquid typically a mixture of water salt and various other conductive elements when you pull the trigger electrical current travels from the gun through the liquid stream to the attacker and they have a longer oh. firing range than tasers and you can shoot them as many times as you want to in succession but they're just more bulky because you basically have to cart that liquid around with you right right so it's a little bit more cumbersome but some of the portable units use the same sort of water pumping system as super soaker squirt guns oh just to have a little (laughs) fun thrown in there yeah final fucked up thing that we do to people there are (laughs) prisons around the world that use stun belt devices to keep inmates in line fuck so basically, they're stun guns that are already attached to people. And then so, they remotely set exactly. them off if you're... Corrections officers, if some shit goes down, they have a remote control. They activate the belt, which applies a high voltage charge to the inmates' kidneys. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Jesus. Is... Like, is there no way to subdue people without being like, we're going to cause some internal damage? Well, apparently not. Like, <laughs> apparently, because like in the middle of a fight, then somebody has to put themselves in harm's way right. in order to break up the fight. And this is a method of not doing that. But then it's like, where does this go? Yeah. Do you, Why not embed that in every prisoner's neck tasers are supposed to limit the deadly force that law enforcement is supposed to use but it seems to just be like a stepping stone up to the lethal force that they're inevitably going to use but it's like i i wonder about that because i agree that there probably should be tools out there that are able to incapacitate somebody or at least like get someone to stop for a temporary amount of time Mm -hmm. but without causing cardiac arrest potential long-term damage to your kidneys Mm -hmm. the cruelty factor right I hope that we will eventually create something that does less damage but is as effective as a taser. Because if I had a choice between a taser and a bullet, I would choose a taser every time. Totally. If If there is a better choice out there that is safer for all people involved, including the officer that has to handle this, I would be fully in favor of that. And I think that we should try to find that solution. Our ability to deal with these situations and actually use them appropriately have not caught up with yeah. the technology. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Yay! Yay! Tasers! <laughs> 
So in this movie, he hides his parents' dead body is in the living room like fake Halloween puppets. And oh, yeah. when they're discovered, they're like partially decomposed. And it's like, I know you lit some incense when you were smoking some weed, Devin Sawa, right. but like, can't you smell your fucking parents decomposing bodies? Right, right. How long does it take for a body to start decomposing? Oh, not long, right? Well, not long at all. Oh, man. So when the heart stops beating, the body immediately starts turning cold, which is known as the death chill or algor mortis. Mm -hmm. Every hour, the body falls about one and a half degrees Fahrenheit, which is one of the various methods that forensic investigators use when trying to determine a time of death. Right, right, right. This many degrees below 98.6. Makes sense. Which, if they had a fever, I could throw it off. Oh, God. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So without the blood moving around the body, it starts to pool and settle and coagulate, Mm -hmm. causing a stiffening of the body to happen about two to six hours after death. That's rigor mortis, That's the famous rigor mortis. While the body is overall dead, there are still lots of living things a part of the body or in the body. For example, skin cells can be viably harvested for up to 24 hours after death, not to mention other organs that can be used for transplant if they're gotten quickly enough. Right, right, okay. But some of those things that are left alive on the body start the decomposition process, mostly the organisms that live in our intestines. Right. So a few days after death, the bacteria in the body starts to eat the body. Uh The pancreas is so full of bacteria that apparently it just digests itself. Oh my goodness. They start to move around digesting other organs and the body starts to become discolored, first turning green, then purple, then black. And it's interesting to me that these things are in a symbiotic relationship when we're alive. Black? Yeah, the body, like, necrotic tissue, Mm -hmm. like, totally black. But, like, yeah, it's fascinating to me that these bacteria are in a symbiotic relationship with us when we're alive and we need them to survive. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we die, they just go nuts. Right, because there's there's no symbiosis here. Yeah, they're like, we're just going to eat everything around us. Uh The bacteria starts creating a horrible smelling gas. Mm -hmm. That causes the body to bloat the eyes to bulge out of their sockets, and the tongue to swell. In rare cases, something really fucked up happens, which is if a woman was pregnant when she died, the gases can create enough pressure to shoot the fetus out of the body, which is known as a coffin birth. No way. Mm Mm-hmm. No, no. No. Like out of her vagina. Yes. Oh, just shoot it right out. Shoot it right out. Coffin birth. Fuck. So a week after death, a slight touch could cause the skin to fall off. Uh A month after death, hair and nails and teeth fall out. There's actually a legend that fingernails keep growing after death, but that's not what actually happens. What happens is they look bigger because the skin around it dries out. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is similar to what you've talked about with like... The gravity causing like yeah. your nose to get bigger your, than your face. Yeah, your and ears stuff. and nose appear bigger, but it's because it's drooping and right. stretching. And, mm-hmm. yeah. So eventually the body swells to the point where it bursts open and what's left is a skeleton. Now, obviously, this is what would happen if we never did anything with a dead body. Mm-hmm. But we have laws about that shit for a reason. Right, because it's disgusting and it's horrifying. It's really bad. Yeah. yeah. And we use coffins and embalming methods to slow this process. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like every culture has a different way of burying their dead. Like... Jews traditionally, Orthodox Jews, wrap the body in a shroud and bury it within a day. Mm-hmm. And whereas like lots of other things have like open casket. They do the wake mm-hmm, shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So to get back to the smell, the environment does dictate how long it will take for a body to start smelling. Mm-hmm. In a really cold and dry climate, the body may not start to stink for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But in hot and wet climates, it's going to be a couple of hours. Right. 
it's very likely that in the movie, the stink would have been extraordinary oh, yeah. within a day. No doubt. And yeah, it's like a couple of days that he's like, I haven't seen my parents in days. Right. And they're like in the living what? room. Yeah, they're like in the wall. <laughs> I'm not actually sure exactly what embalming does to embalming, stop you re- that. You replace blood. the blood with a fluid that is effectively a preservative. Okay. And so it it like stops the process of decomposition by the bacteria and slows everything down and all the blood has been removed from your body and replaced with this. Right, but what you're saying is that just prolongs the decomposition process like it's still gonna eventually get stinky right anybody who's been embalmed and in a coffin for long enough will decompose this just brings me back again to I just want to be in one of those tree pots yeah tree pots all the way either burn me up so I'm not like just a stinky gas yeah 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 (laughs) or put me in a tree like or do that that thing where it was like they flash freeze you and then shatter your body using sound waves we talked about that a little while ago oh that's right that's right Oh, man, it just I would actually kind of want to look more into embalming like because, you know, we've talked about the Egyptians, like the ancient way of of mummification and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I don't really know that much about the process of embalming or like just watch six feet under. You'll get it. Oh, God. I mean, I guess I'm just fascinated that even these days we still even bury our dead, you know, like rather than. Well, first of all, like when you just see the endless amount of space that graveyards take up, you're sort of like, ah, limited resources. Are we still doing this? But also just like there seems to be so many better options. Right. Whether you're spread from a from, you know, across the Grand Canyon. Right. Right. But but that's like a very you and I kind of thinking Mm -hmm. of like, fuck tradition. Let's just do what seems right. And Mm -hmm. I totally understand somebody being like, my father was buried there. His father was buried there. I'm going to be a part of this continuum. Oh, yeah. Like my dad dad's already got his plot like all set to go and it's like far be it for me to tell anybody like what to do right but it's just like you know until we change it it's just like we're just keeping corpses in the ground (laughs) yeah (laughs) well better than on the streets that's true that's true did you have any favorite lines in this movie no not at all I the only line I wrote down was if you combine nutmeg and oregano you can get pretty wasted which I don't think is true they were they were big potheads in this movie, yeah, right? Yeah, the whole thing that is was... like they they're smoking weed. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this movie. Let's move on from it. He's a couch potato. <laughs> He's lazy. You can find us at oh that's a thing.com. You can rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at oh that's a thing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joyamia on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And we will see you all here next week for the movie Twister. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> it's a Twister. Bye. Bye. For a white guy Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, cinco, seis